go. There's the theme tune. It's like the news, isn't it? It's, it's, it's magnificent. It's magnificent. Uh, hello, and welcome to another of Political Yeti's Politics Podcasts. Uh, I'm James Miller, and uh, that voice telling me my uh, theme tune is magnificent, magnificent, <laughs> is uh, Roger Mullen, SNP MP for Kirkcaldy and Cowdenbeath, and member of the SNP's Treasury team. Correct. Hello, uh, hello, lovely to be here once again, James. Indeed, uh, lovely to have you on. And I'm also delighted to be joined again <laughs> by uh, currently running number two in the podcast charts in its current incarnation, uh, Tony Grew. Um, hello. Just Parliament man, really. Man who knows everything about Parliament. He's number one. Uh, Mary Black. Okay. Well, Black. you can't be. Black's always that. number can't one. Can't be that. Uh, you can try. <laughs> uh, I'm very well, fail. thank you. Um, let's start with. This. PMQs in review, Roger. You look, you look confused by that. I, I, I wasn't quite as taken with that as I was the original, oh, right. the I opening to, jingle. I, uh, all right, I need to do a whole new set of jingles. Uh, for lots of things, including uh, you know, quite possibly Tony Cruz's rant of the month, if you've got anything you want to rant about. I'm in a, um, a very zen mood today. So okay, like uh, let's start with PMQs. Um, well, let's start at the beginning, shall we? Uh, so it's usually a good place to start. Um, with <laughs> Jeremy Corbyn uh, commenting on Conor McGinn having a baby. Uh, his wife didn't seem to have anything to do with it. It was all about Conor McGinn, who delivered this baby on the kitchen floor or something. Uh, and this led to much hilarity because uh, Theresa May thought that this baby was, uh, what, Jeremy, Jeremy Corbyn's, Corbyn's grandson or something? No, granddaughter. Yeah. It was all very confused. And it was quite it was, funny, though. Was it? Yeah, it was, I find it I quite thought funny. it was cringeworthy. Roger, did you laugh? Yeah. No, I thought it, I, I, like you, I thought it was cringeworthy and for the basic reason that he was then trying to raise a very serious subject and it was interspersed by hilarity. Yeah. So I thought the whole context was what destroyed it. Yeah, well, that's part of it. They kept coming back to it as well, didn't they? They kept, they went on for about two or three of the questions. They kept re- re- returning to it. It was just like, leave it. It's not going well. Anyway, uh, so I just think the way in which it was managed, maybe the first time, the first laugh, fine, but... Why did they return to it in the midst of talking about serious issues? Yeah, I mean, my concern is, and I don't know if you'll bite at this one, Tony, you're a, a traditionalist. Uh, what are mm-hmm. we going to do with PMQs? Are we just going to refer every week to anybody who's had some sort of interesting event in their life? Is Jeremy Corbyn going to start wishing people, you know, 30th, 40th, 50th, 60th birthdays? Well, you, you know, know, where does it end? PMQs has been done very differently. I've seen three prime ministers take PMQs. Gordon Brown famously would start with the list of the dead. Oh, yeah, been killed yeah. in, a, in, a, in Iraq, and yeah. he was criticised for that because mm-hmm. it was seen as him attempting to deflect a harsh yep. question yeah. first Absolutely. because of him reading out lists mm. of, of, of the war dead. Um, you know, it's interesting that Angus Robertson mentioned that a soldier had been killed in a live firing accident mm. in a range in Scotland, and the PM hadn't. I was surprised. I thought she might have wanted to begin yeah. with wow. that. So it's a it's a it's a risky it's a tricky area, and uh, you know, there's risk of. Uh, by the way, just point out, Jeremy the PM didn't start with a joke. Jeremy Corbyn started with this avuncular stuff yes. about uh, my my honourable friend from St Helens and uh, him delivering a baby. Mm. Um, so. 
you know, with PMQs, it, it, it depends on the PM. It depends what's happening. It can be deathly serious. There are sometimes funny things to talk about. There are also sure. sometimes things that you do want to say, such as congratulations to our, our Paralympians and to our Olympians yeah. for winning all those medals. I think this week, the, the interesting thing this week is that the Prime Minister is in a weird position because she's supposed to be aware of everything that's happening in the House and aware of what's happening yeah. with MPs. And of course she's not because she's really mm. busy. So oh, nearly every MP, because they're on Facebook and Twitter, yeah. would know that Conor McGinn's wife had a baby and the baby came early and that Conor had to deliver the baby and he was getting advice down the phone from a 999 yeah, yeah. caller to tell him how to deliver the baby. We all know that, but the PM lives in a, in a, in a, in a little bubble. So she was. And also the interesting thing mm. was it was Patrick McLaughlin, who's the former chief whip. He's now the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, which I'm not going to go into. Yeah. But, but, you know, he, he actually told her, he actually apparently told her that it was Corbett's granddaughter. So he obviously yeah. doesn't know what's going on. Either. Yeah. And then he got a kick in for it. But uh, yeah. I don't think her that lives in the bubble. Surely it's everybody else in the bubble that's on Twitter because that's how they all know about it. Prime Minister's not on Twitter. I thought this was outrageous. Uh, she, has a, she has a Twitter account, but I doubt she's got. She has as much free time as you do, James. What's wrong with her? Um, <laughs> so yes, we had that hilarity. Um, but it leads, sorry, can I say, it leads to a wider malaise with Prime Minister's questions. Uh, you know, since uh, since Jeremy Corbyn took over, obviously, and now since Theresa May, it, it's completely changed it, and it's become frustratingly, uh, you know, free of answers and free of the mm. technique. Uh, that, we, that we're used to of an opposition leader getting the Prime Minister on the ropes. I can think of five issues that the leader of the opposition could have, if, if with his six questions, really, oh, really pummeled her. I, I know. But he, he also doesn't respond. He doesn't listen. He's not an active listener. Yeah. He never responds to what she yeah. says. So what he's got is he's got six questions, prescriptive, and basically he reads them. Yeah. And that's about it. And But the other thing is, if you're going to go down that line... My advice would be it's probably a good idea to have them joined up mm. so that you don't suddenly... I mean, last week, I think it was last week, it was particularly bad. He asked a question about Saudi Arabia, and then the next yes. question went to the Chagos Islands or, yeah. or yeah. somewhere else, you know, and unrelated. Yeah. Mm. And so it, the whole thing just appears, to be honest, pretty amateurish and boring. I think, yeah. Yeah. Uh, for me, what I think is it's happened since May. I think she has got a strategy of trying to calm things down mm. and introduce a lot more boredom in the way in which the conversation takes place between her and the leader of the opposition. Is that true? Though? I, I'd suggest that's true of her style of government, not just PMQs. That she doesn't, you know, that, yeah, basically, she's trying to take a lot of the sting out of it, if you like. Well, I'm pretty sure she wants to take the sting out of it uh, uh, in the current circumstances. Mm. The, uh, I mean, and... For me, I would say it's very clear too that parliamentary business from the government side is becoming lighter and lighter. Yeah. Because their mind, as we know, yeah. is elsewhere. Mm -hmm. It's maybe, uh, or minds are elsewhere. They're, they're not of one mind, but it's all focused in brain. And, and we've got, you know, that's going to be the situation possibly until May when we get a Queen's speech. So the one thing I wanted to say is PMQs may appear boring to us at the moment, but we're in the phony war of Brexit. Nothing's mm. really actually happened yet. And so I, I predict that if we're having this conversation in March next year or in April mm. next year, things, things will be a lot more turbulent and she'll be coming under a lot more pressure. I don't think that's the thing that people of Westminster have given enough thought to is just how turbulent this is going to get. Whenever she announces some sense of what her position is going to be, and then we'll see how the markets react to that and then we'll see how our European partners react to that. Yeah. This is going to get very turbulent. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and again, you can see that. You, like you say, we're not, the heat's not been turned up yet, but you're already seeing 
with the question she'd been asked by a backbencher. You had Kelly Tolhurst who asked a completely moronic question about, isn't Brexit great? Well done. That was a waste of everybody's time. But then you had the fellow who's got more cows in his constituency than anybody, David Warburton, yeah, who told us that his constituency has got more cows than anybody else. But he's worried about what's going to happen to cheese, yeah, you know, <laughs> realistically. As was, uh, who was it, David Simpson, the uh, Northern Irish yeah. uh, MP as well. They raised the same subject. There are people worried about this stuff. Of course there and are. she's not got any answers, and it's really going to start on her own side, and it's going to start ramping up and ramping up. Yeah, so as I say, we're in a phony war. Well, let's see where we are in, a, in, in six months or so, but, you know, she, she, she'll be getting a lot more hate from her backbenchers. You know, yes. she's still, still with them in a bit of a honeymoon period. And also, the economic effects of Brexit aren't really showing yet. I mean... Other uh, than with the currency. Yeah, the currency, but, you know... They're, you know, currency traders are like teenage girls at a One Direction concert. You know, they lose their. One Direction concert. Well, you have that. You have that ahead of you. <laughs> yeah. What's yeah. that? One Direction are finished, man. You are so old school. No, One Direction split up. Yes, I know, and they'll be back. That's what pop band. That's what that's what that's what boy band and girl bands do. They get back uh, together. Right to touch, it's all about little mix these days. Okay. Well, I can't know. take part in this conversation. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Don't leave, Roger. We'll change the topic. <laughs> Famous pop star from Fife. Is there not somebody in your constituency? They're not, they're not some pop star came from Kakodi. Probably. I can't remember. Just cut that uh, whole section. But yeah, exactly. We'll come back to that. Uh, okay, let's talk about uh, the SNP Prime Minister's questions. Yeah. Because the SNP's Westminster Group leader in waiting, as he's known, Callum McKay, had a question. Uh, admittedly, he's only known. Uh, by me, as <laughs> but uh, I'm working on it. Yes, I was um, wondering who the heck are you talking about? He had a very good question about oil and gas. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had Chris Stevens who asked a very sensible question about uh, DWP phone costs, and you had who was your number three? Gavin Newlands, cheery Gavin Newlands, <laughs> who asked about uh, immigration detention centres. And then but, we had Chris well, Stevens asking yes, a very good one about the telephone the tax. Costs. These were. Uh, grown up, sensible questions, holding the government to account. Yes. Um, I thought today the SNP did very well. Overall. I think we did very well. I, of course, was particularly pleased with the issue that Angus raised because it's a matter that I've been working on for some time. Right. Explain this because he went for the, it was the classic Angus Robertson one-two. He sets yeah. up a question, yeah. and in the prime minister goes. Uh, what's this? And then the second question, he goes, boom! Yes, you see, uh, you, you know see, about this already, did you, right? Did you see her face? But when he asked the first one, because she knew there was something yes. coming, but couldn't work out what it was going to be. But the trouble is, when the second question came, I got a bit confused. It was a bit technical. So can you explain it to me? What is it? SLPs? SLPs. What are these? Uh, we've got to thank a Mr. Asquith in 1907 okay. right. who uh, created SLPs. What they are is basically a financial vehicle for what's called limited partnerships. Yeah. But the the way in which they operate, which is different from every other type of limited partnership that is in the UK, right. is that they are able to hide very easily who the owners are, the beneficial owners. Oh, so okay. it's not open and transparent. They can. They are also. They're tending to be used by. A, they're a vehicle of choice now by international criminals. Right. First of all, because it's easy to put them alongside other financial vehicles. So, the international monetary crime that's mm. associated doesn't actually come into the UK. This is a vehicle that's used alongside other vehicles. Right. And what it. But what it means is it can hide ownership. Right. And it means that the transactions are not transparent either. 
Therefore, it's very attractive to international crime as a means of them moving, channeling their funds into tax havens without it being easily detectable. Uh, one of your colleagues, a journalist, mm. has been resolutely pursuing this for over a year, uh, David Leask in the Herald. Oh, the Herald, yeah. And, I mean, an enormous job, really, painstaking job to track down some of this stuff. Already, what has been tracked down is billions of pounds. Right. We're not talking small-scale crime, we're talking billions. There is one case at the moment in America... Yeah. Which involves one billion dollars right, uh, alone. Just, There's lots of stuff in Eastern Europe, the old yeah. uh, USSR areas right, that's being just used. Explain this to me in practical terms. I mean, uh, Angus mentioned Moldova, as he called it, which I think most Did people call, call Moldova. But um, so what happens? So there's a baddie there, and he or she is what? Well, let, let's say so what? Selling guns, selling drugs, robbing banks. What are they doing? Oh, they can be doing all sorts of things. They're a front, for example, for paedophile websites. Right. Right. So they then they're make a front money for, off that. Yes, there's a front. They're a front for money laundering. Right. Right. In other words, money that comes from all sorts of different yeah. sources, criminal sources. And uh, because of the breakdown of the USSR, yeah. right, there is a certain sort of turmoil and frissons in the economic and social structure there. So very often what they're looking for is something that has the advantage of having the appearance of being reputable. How better than using a financial vehicle that's from the UK, right? right? And But that hides the sources of their funds, that hides any transparency. Right, but how do, they, how do they do it? So they get all this dirty money. And then what? They go to a Scottish bank and set one up, or they just set one up and register it with Scottish Companies House or something? What, what, how does it work? Well, here's the problem. <laughs> you and I could set one up if we wanted today by going online and spending 30 quid. Ah, okay. Right. right. Or thereabouts. Fine. Right. It is not under the same regulatory regime as other financial instruments would be. So it's not under the regulation of the FCA. Uh-huh, it's okay. not under... Right. A, in that. So what it is, is it allows them to establish something that's reputable, but it escapes all the regulation. And it also right. escapes some aspects of the law, like the mm. criminal law about uh, money laundering and the like. So it escapes so much, as well as because it has what lawyers would call uh, its own personality... It means that you you don't necessarily see who the owners are. So uh, this sounds like an open and shut case of something really dodgy. So it's why has the government dodgy. not shut it down? Why has it been going for 100 years? Over 100 it, it, years? Well, it's actually only from about 2007, 2008 that the international criminals have come across this. Ah, OK. But since 2008, the number of registrations has been going up by 40% a year. There's now thousands. So why has it not been shut down? Is there some sort of benefit? to the tax man. No, because he's missing There out is the absolutely no taxation benefit whatsoever, right? Because it, the money doesn't actually come yeah. here. So why is it not it's been shut down? Why has this loophole not been closed? Well, I'm trying to close it because there is a criminal finances bill and I've already put down an amendment asking for a review. But I, I, I think there are actually some simple things that could be done that would prevent it being used for criminal purposes, but still allow them to be used within the UK for legitimate purposes. But the government, for its own reason, voted down an amendment of binding the finance bill, 
I've already talked to the security minister. I talked to him the evening before the second reading debate about the criminal finances mm -hmm. bill, right? And he said to me, what are you concerned about in this bill? I said, the bill itself is harmless. It does nothing of any great worth. I said, what concerns me is what's not in it. And he said, well, what's not in it? And I said, Scottish Limited Partnerships. And the minister was sitting there with four officials and looked at me and said to me, what are they? What are you talking about? What are you talking about? <laughs> and that was like May's reaction okay. today. Yeah. Now, this involves billions of criminal money using effectively a UK old vehicle right. for... It's got reputational benefits for them. It allows them to hide ownership. It allows them to go to the Cayman Islands or whatever mm -hmm. without being caught on any of the new regulations that they want to impose. Why would the government not want to... Well, they wouldn't want to accept an SNP amendment because it's an SNP amendment. I mean, yeah. it's sorry, sorry, I, I, you know, sorry to say this to the SNP because they don't have any peers. But if you really want to change the legislation, you do it in the Lords. No, because, <laughs> it's true because the government, because the government is much more likely to accept Lords amendments than opposition amendments in the Commons. It's just one of the things the way it works. But I, I, I yeah. want to commend your your work on this. I knew I knew very little about this until the SNP started. I knew nothing about it until the SNP started making noise about it. And, and Angus has used his position at Prime Minister's questions to get this in front of the. Nation. Yeah. So, you know, hopefully you'll start to get some answers from the government in this. Theresa May, if I was the Prime Minister and had been caught out in that way on the mm -hmm. floor of the House, would turn to my officials and go, what the hell was he talking about? And I want to report on it. Absolutely. And we think we've got a meeting because of the way she ended her response to Angus mm -hmm. saying, well, we do meet regularly. Yeah. And, and he said from his, ah, so we've got a meeting then. Yeah. So he'll be following this up immediately saying, here is a meeting. And what we will be able to do is go in there and, you know, I will be quite happy to give a proper brief to the officials. The important thing for us uh, in the longer run for Scotland and the way in which we view things is that we don't want to have anything happening that does reputational damage to our finance sector. Okay. And the concern for us, of course we're concerned about Nobody wants to support criminality, but we've got the wider concern about potential reputational damage. And the subtext here is, if you had an independent Scotland, you would close these things down immediately and everything would be better. Well, what we would do is we would put them under regulation so that it avoids the criminality but allows them to be used for legitimate purposes. Uh, always comes back to independence, doesn't it? That's the bottom line. No, you came back to independence. I know, but that's because that's the subtext, right? It's always you that's that the subtext, you to it, always, right? You come always on, come that's back the to subtext. No, I think that's really unfair, actually. I think what you're saying is that the SNP are only doing this because it, it has it has somewhere down the line something to do with independence. Now, I, I know the, no, the SNP, like, I, I watch them polish their halos on a regular basis as well about how everything is better in Scotland, but I do think this is a serious point, and I think it's not being raised as a, as, as a wedge issue to try and force independence. I don't think that is the case. And I don't think the SNP always do that, and I think you're a little bit harsh on them I for saying that. Well, I don't, no, the no, SNP not, could not come here. The SNP could come here, do no work, and try and wreck everything that goes on. That's not what they've done. They work hard, they're good parliamentarians, and they're trying to, they're trying to contribute to the United Kingdom as a whole. Now, every opportunity oh. they get to mention independence, they will. Yeah, I'm not knocking it. I'm just suggesting they, come on, the SNP are not necessarily contributing to the, the UK as a whole because they want to break it up, right? Yes, that's, that's the ultimate aim. So it's no, not no, no. If you wanted, to, sorry, sorry, well, everything sorry, the SNP just, takes on. Let me just finish my point, though. Is, if they wanted to behave in that the way, the SNP is it be better in independent Scotland? Well, no. If, they, if if all they were interested in was the destruction of the UK, then they could be as mendacious as they wanted in this house. Try and try and that, foul up business. Try and mess things around. I mean, it would be the, that would look uh, irresponsible. I, that would make them look. I know, but uh, so, well, but I mean, you could do it in ways that are not 
uh, easily exposed to the same extent to the public, so it wouldn't uh, create public ire but could screw things up. If I take one example, yeah. I've sat now in four bill committees. Mm. Right? We, what did you do to upset the whips? We, yes, <laughs> we could put every clause to a vote in a committee and it would destroy the situation. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It, we know that people are not sitting evidently at home seeing what's happening in this bill committee. Mm-hmm. So it wouldn't get the opprobrium that it would if it was in the floor of the house, but it could absolutely screw up the government's works. Now, we're choosing not to do that. Mm. But if you did do that, then it would become a story. And then people would say, well, they're being a bit silly by just messing everything up. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, uh, we've got a lot of people who have read history as well and realise that that is actually a pretty problematic game to think yeah. about. Yeah, this is a game Irish nationalists played, and the reason I mention it is because yeah. that's the game that Irish nationalists played in the 19th century. They effectively just tried to frustrate all legislation yeah. at any that's point right. they could okay. to try and push they forward their idea Absolutely. of Irish, and didn't get them any, didn't do them any good. No, really. There you go. Yeah. See, so well, I, I'm not knocking it. I'm just suggesting. That but that's, but I, mean, I don't think it's unreasonable to suggest we, we that the SNP's like, ultimate goal is independence. No, and that is, it, it is of course. You know, everything is driven by that. But uh, although this might be difficult for you to believe, we are all so normal human beings. We're, and uh, we've got lots of people who care passionately about different issues. And I think if you looked at, for example, uh, Alison Thewlis mm-hmm. and the work mm-hmm. she's done in the so-called rape clause and the like, Alison's not been pursuing that issue because she thinks, oh, this is just a neat way of pursuing independence. She's pursuing that because she passionately believes that it's fundamentally wrong to force women to have to prove they've been raped. Well, obviously. I mean, that's kind of... <laughs> no, but uh, she's also building cross-party support. Know, she's still working with others, trying to get it forward. It is amazing know, that absolutely. that's still going. How many months after the, the it's more than budget? Than a year. Yeah, that's year's budget. still being discussed. Uh, when, as you, you know, you said it like that, it seems entirely self-evident. All normal people, come on, there's a few weirdos don't on, I, on the SNP benches, I, isn't there? I don't, don't want to name names, but I can think of some people who. Don't are you think? I saw. Do I come across as reasonably normal? <laughs> You're reasonably normal. I mean, I saw Martin Doherty Hughes wearing a bow tie in the chamber the other day. Is that normal mm, behaviour? What is your problem well, with bow ties? He's not wearing a bow tie in the chamber. He's come got on. his own style, James. That's true. Would you like me to describe? to your listeners how you are looking at the moment. Well, do you know, because it's just been <laughs> Halloween, I have come in fancy dress as an MP. Can you guess which MP I've come dressed as? Yes, uh, Matt Hancock. No, <laughs> wrong. That's a good try, though. Plum, the plum jumper. Yeah. Uh-huh. No, I've got uh, cords on. Jeremy. No. <laughs> Getting closer, though. Get closer. Clive Lewis. Oh, right, yeah. Oh, right. He's with his jumper and his cords and his jackets. Well, no, your colours your color all match. His rarely do. I know. Well, that's true. Um... <laughs> Anyway, how did we get on to... Because we're talking get, about SLPs. We've, we've got back on to Roger Mullins' fashion tips again, uh, <laughs> as we did in the last podcast without even trying it when yes. you were on. Um, I don't think it anyway, does well with the nation. Yeah, you're wearing a Zimbabwe tie. So Can I don't I? know if we want to raise fashion. Zimbabwe's like a bad place, isn't it? I, I, I'm such a romantic. A few years ago, I decided to take my wife holiday in Zimbabwe in the middle of an election. No, this was about what a lucky, four, lucky woman. four years ago. I mean, it was because she had always had a desire uh, uh, to 
be with big cats. So we went walking with lions out in the bush in Zimbabwe. This is like the worst holiday ever. And then, and the next day, <laughs> such was the thrill, we went riding in the back of an African bull elephant also, which wow. you can do, as long as you sign a disclaimer. Did you get insurance for this holiday? Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> you had to sign a disclaimer to say that, you know, if the lion attacked you and ate you, you wouldn't sue them and things well, like yeah. that. But, uh, Jeez. Sounds um, so that's, that's where I brought the tie. I would argue that because the SNP are driven by nothing but independence, you're wearing a Zimbabwe tie because of UDI. And you think it's a model? Yeah, for Scotland. yeah. Let's let's talk that, about let's talk about reducing right? let's talk about reducing policy of the nineteen seventies. <laughs> we've had Asquith. Come on, it's, that's more up to date. I should say <laughs> it's a claret-coloured tie with little uh, elephants. elephants all over yeah. it. Yeah, yellow elephants. Yeah. You buy this tie, and what it does is most of the money goes to help uh, uh, preserve the preserving yeah. elephants. How does that help independence? Even even I am struggling to find a link okay. between saving the elephant and Scottish um, independence. Tell you what, though, here's a smooth link, correct? Because, <laughs> right, am I right in thinking that Probably in a previous not. life you went around the world telling people how to have democracies, right? Well, I did simplify it. I did 27 international assignments for the UN yeah. and uh, other agencies. Let's talk about the greatest democracy in the world then who are going to the polls next week. As a, an expert in democracy, like how smooth is that? How smooth was that link? Um, as, a, as an expert in democracies, do you look at America and go, God blimey, I could tell them a few things they could do better I, I look at America at the moment completely and utterly aghast and feel, really feel for the ordinary decent people and thinking we've been left with that choice. I mean, that's what I honestly feel. I mean, I don't have great regard for either of those candidates. Uh, and uh, I think it's desperately difficult. I've been talking with people in uh, uh, in America and also a good friend, believe it or not, in Singapore, but who's very close to what's happening right. in America. And uh, I certainly wouldn't put any money on it. No. I think there's probably a wee bit better chance of Trump winning than people are giving credit for. Yes. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I mean, he's not the favourite, my eyes, mm. but I think there's a higher chance mm. that he could do it than other people are admitting to. Fine. And that who's, worries me. Who's going to win? Come on, don't go for the politician's hands, I call it. I would, I would, I would say that there's a 52.3% chance that Clinton is going to win. Clinton. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> who's going to win, Tony? I don't know. Oh, yeah. come on. I don't really what, know. Do you Call want to, it. What's the point in making a useless prediction? Well, just for fun, isn't it? Call it. Well, like, it's a little bit more complicated than that. It depends on oh, a range of issues. You're not a politician. You can say what you like. Call well, it. It depends on turn on you, is, is the first yeah. thing. Well, but but it's also important to remember that I think almost, I think over 20% of Americans have already voted. They voted early. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think that will help uh, Clinton. I think so. But um, it's a terrible situation. By the way, they're not the world's greatest democracy. Yeah. So you want to spend five minutes talking about black voter suppression in the United States to talk about mm-hmm. the horrific right. way in which they deny African Americans the rights. Not now. Not in the 60s. Right now. Yes. Voter suppression are, laws passed in a series of southern states. There um, are, are practicalities at the risk of, I don't want to dismiss serious okay, concerns, but, but there are practicalities that need to be overlooked. They're, not, theory, they're, not, they're not the world's greatest in democracy. In theory, it's the world's greatest democracy. 
no, no, only is. only in James Miller's theory. Oh come on, no, in the setup with the separation of powers and all that. It's a gridlock. Brilliant. Well and done. Every time the P- politicised Supreme takes Court takes place peacefully. Brilliant. By the way, if there is a court case, as, as we had in the year two thousand, where there were court cases in the presidential election, yeah. can we just say that this, the world's greatest democracy has now managed to get itself into a position where the Supreme Court only has eight members, and so therefore they could have a tie in the Supreme Court over issues to do with the presidential election. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, well done, everyone. Well, um, so uh, my view, my view is a couple of things. I think if Hillary, I think Hillary is a terrible candidate I think she's completely overpolished and I, it makes me sad mm. whenever I see anyone I see the Vice President Joe Biden and think you, if you were running for the Democrats you you know he, Trump would be nowhere near winning she's, she's, she's a disliked candidate yep. some of that is sexism yes. there is an issue there yep. with sexism but I find it very I've, you know I find it very worrying my brother lives in America he lives in Boston with his wife and his kids and I worry about what a Trump's America would be like, but I also worry what Hillary's America is going to be like, because what Hillary's going to end up with is about 48% of the American population filled with rage and anger and feel that they're unfulfilled and feel that America doesn't work for them. For any president, that would be a huge hill to climb. I I, I agree. I think these are very wise words. Um, I think Trump will win. Okay. You never lose by overestimating the amount of misogyny in society. And that was what came against it. There you go. Called it. See, okay. At least I've called it. Good. Wrong, we're trying to provide you know. a little bit of context for your uh, podcast, but if it's just a, going to be a series of uh, quick-fire questions yeah, to which you only want a one-word answer, then it'll be a considerably shorter podcast. Uh, <laughs> which it probably should be anyway. We've got on so, uh, quite quite a long time as it is. Um, yeah, we have. Um, do we want to talk about I, Daniel Blake? Well, none of us have seen it. Have we not? Uh, have you not? Neither of you seen it? I don't watch depressing yeah. Ken Loach films. No, I could have gone to see it last week, but I went to see um, Doctor Strange instead. And how was that? <laughs> All right. Yeah, no, bit of nonsense. I mean, it's it's it, it, but it's this is a classic example for politicians. And I, I was in the, I was in the press gallery watching Damien Green, and I just thought, oh God, please tell me you're not going to criticise something that you haven't seen. That is the worst political mistake. So of course he says, oh, I haven't seen the film, but apparently it's monstrously unfair. And you just think, hold on, Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, yeah. Yeah, no, you can't go around saying thing. things like that. It's it's, it's you know, it's, don't comment on things you haven't seen. Well, Absolutely. Jeremy Corbyn says we should all go and see it, which I thought was a bit dodgy, frankly. Just well, plugging his mate's film. Well, let's not forget that Ken Loach made a leadership campaign video well, exactly. for, uh, for Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. Yeah. Go and see my friend's film. But and in question time, was it last week? Ken Loach was singing yeah. the praises of both Jeremy Corbyn and John. Well, see all the your own conclusions. That's the left wing establishment right there. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, all right. Um, Okay, listen. I think we have got on long enough. Uh, far too far too long some people might be thinking uh, so we will uh, close it there and I shall say uh, thank you to my guests uh, Roger Mullen and thank you to Tony Grew uh, tune in next week for a special podcast you're going to like next week's one um, as against this week's one is that what you're uh, trying to this say this one this is yeah there's it, an actual special next week I mean this is a good one but next week has uh, got something different about it well you're uh, not in it I am <laughs> I am but I am uh, well, I, I, I won't give it. Just listen in, okay? It'll be good. You'll like it. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to get in touch, uh, I am at Political Yeti on Twitter or Political Yeti at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, tune in next week for an uh, extra special one of Political Yeti's Politics Podcast. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>